Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And today we're speaking to Jason Badun, professor of religious studies at Northern Arizona University, and a man who knows a thing or two about money and the religion he founded, the religion of light, also known as Manichaeism. Jason, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we basically want to cover two most basic things, if we can, in this uh, interview. One is, who is this Manny character? What is his life like? What kind of stuff goes on? And the second is, what is Manichaeism? Get some idea of what these people believed, what they were doing, the chronological and geographical space occupied by Manichaeism, that sort of thing. So let's start with Manny. Who is this guy? Well, uh, that's a great place to start. We thought we knew. Um, and then a couple of years ago, Ian Gardner came out with a new book that, that challenged and questioned all that we thought we knew about Monty. Mm-hmm. We do have pretty solid information on his dates, right? It's 216 to 277 CE is probably a very secure dating for Monty. Um, but to understand who he could have been, we need to understand that he uh, was, was born and raised in Mesopotamia. The Mesopotamian late antiquity was the most cosmopolitan place on earth. It had many different cultures uh, intersecting from long periods of colonization, occupation, migration. And so you have ancient Babylonian traditions, you have uh, Jewish traditions, you have uh, Iranian traditions, and sort of more widespread Semitic, Aramaic, Syriac kinds of traditions, linguistic, uh, literary, religious, all flowing together in a kind of melting pot of Mesopotamia. And so that environment is what explains Mani more than any biographic details we may or may not know. Later, Manichaean tradition says that he was a prince, that he was born of the extended royal family of the Parthians. The Parthian Empire had just uh, lost out. Shortly after Mani was born, the Parthian Empire was reconfigured as the Sasanian Empire. And to tell you the truth, the more scholars look at it, the more it's kind of reorganization of the empire than a, than a conquest. Most of the noble families that had been involved were still the nobles in charge of the Sasanian dynasty. It's right. just the top family's family changed. But Mesopotamia had this, this rich mixture of things that Mani was raised in. And so he grew up in a kind of commune kind of setting, loosely called Jewish-Christian. The, the actual group was called Elkasite. We don't know a lot about Elkasites, so it's not too safe to, to, to assume too much about that. A very valuable manuscript was found in the 60s in Egypt. The Cologne Mani Codex gives us a little bit of information on how later Manichaeans portrayed that sort of environment of a sectarian commune uh, where he would have been raised. And um, so Ian Gardner has recently argued that Mani was not a prince. He was not Parthian. Um, he was a, a member of this, for lack of a better word, Jewish Christian sectarian group, and uh, he began to have experiences, even as a child, visions of various kinds, communing with nature in unique ways, and it finally led, at the age of 24, uh, around 240 CE, he, he broke with the community, he left the community, took a few followers with him, and began this movement that would become Manichaeism. The visions are interesting because they're from his spiritual twin or his, his, I think the Greek term that's used is Suzdugos, no? Like his, which is also appears in Valentinian stuff. So it's some kind of higher angelic form of himself. Is that right? Is that a fair way? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So, so money has this, this twin, this light twin, that is his higher self. That's very well put. And Manichaeans believe that everyone has these. But um, Mani's is special because Mani is special. Mani is a sort of foreordained 
person. He's he's a human being, but he's um, in in greater contact with his his spiritual double, and therefore receives information. He d- it's described as as oral communications, but he also has visions involving what's going on, sort of behind the surface of the world around him. He experiences the cries of living things, plant animals. He, he's aware of their suffering. Um, so there's a sort of very Buddhistic kind of element there in terms of awareness that all living things are involved in suffering in the world. And um, humans are the primary culprit of that suffering, the way we treat plants and animals. And so that awareness, you know, makes him alert of, of a problem. And then his contact, his light starts to give him the answers to that. A sort of, and, and the basis of the answer is that this is part of a universal condition that is shaping the reality around us as good and evil strive and struggle to sort themselves out from each other in a, in a universe that mixes both of them together. Completely fascinating. You can see why, without broaching this question, um, but just leaving it as a little tantalizing comment for the moment, you can see why people want to talk about this movement in terms of Gnosticism. <laughs> because Gnosticism, in its the way it's constructed, if it exists at all, it's usually constructed as some kind of dualist. The world is evil. We need to return the divine sparks to the Pleroma, or the, the place that isn't evil, because we're trapped down here, right? And so in, in Manichaeism, you have the, this idea that there's light trapped in, sort of enmeshed in darkness and has to be freed through, well, ritual actions, I guess. We'll get to that when we get to the religion right. itself. Let me ask you a couple more kind of due diligence questions. The first one is, uh-huh. can you give us a brief, but hopefully adequate enough survey of the state of the sources because i know this is a scriptural religion mani himself has a huge literary output um and there's these all these canonical texts written in syriac but like none of it survives in the original anymore pretty much it's all in a crazy huge swathe of language so what do we have to go on well about a hundred years ago we had to go on were the reports of opponents of mani and manichaeism and across the board everything from latin sources to chinese sources talking about those people. Um, but starting in the early part of the 20th century, we began to have archaeological discovery of primary Manichaean sources. So they include um, a, a fragmentary Latin manuscript from Algeria, for example, Tabesic They include um, a huge find of material from Egypt, the Medinet Mahdi codices, which were discovered in the late 1920s and are still being worked on, still being read and edited to this day because they're in very terrible condition, very hard to read. And so we keep coming up with new techniques to apply to them to try to read more. But this is a, a collection of seven codices, including um, at least one codex, which appears to be an original composition of Mani, the Synoxys Codex seems to contain his gospel, mm. um, broken into weekly reading portions. That's why it's called the Synoxys Codex. It, it divides the readings of Mani's gospel into these uh, portions, as well as hymn books, um, doctrinal treatises, all kinds of other things. It's a lot of Coptic material yeah. uh, from Egypt. And then in the 1990s, another set of finds were made in Egypt at a site called Kellis, way out in the desert. Um, another batch of materials from a couple houses that clearly had mannequins living in them, and more fragments of these letters, and a lot of correspondence of the local mannequins with, with other mannequins elsewhere in Egypt. So we have that material. And then we have to go all the way to Central Asia for the next big batch of material. Also began to be discovered around 1904, uh, right up until the First World War started, a series of expeditions working in what was then uh, Northwest uh, China. It was China was going from having a imperial government to a republic government. And these German expeditions had permits from the Chinese government to collect antiquities. And 
among all the Buddhist remains found Manichaean remains, including about 5,000 fragments of Manichaean texts. And these are in um, Parthian language, which is the, our primary source for Parthian language, is Manichaean literature. Wow. There's very few other remains of Parthian in the world. So the Parthian language is the, the language, the, the Persianate language spoken by the Parthians, who were, of course, the regime that had been running the, what we now call sort of Persia, from the, say, like the Roman Republican period, right the way down to this third century period when the Sasanians take over. And the Sasanians are another Persianate lineage, and they're going to rule until Islam comes on the scene. Take it away. There's a little um, uh, historical background. Yes. yes. Right. So these are Iranian languages, Middle Iranian languages, the Parthian language, the Middle Persian language, which is the language that then the Sasanians would use. Also a language called Sogdian, which most people don't know about, um, which is a, from, from the north of what's today Iran, um, more in, in, in Central Asia. The Sogdians so are Manichaean really interesting. All of oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say. They are, because they, got, they, got, they, they traveled very far. They were merchants primarily. Yeah. Uh, and they got from Europe to China, so they were very extensive. They were like the the middlemen of central of of Eurasia. They were the, they sort of cornered the market on this Asian uh, trade routes, and they had huge networks, and they were everywhere. Really, really interesting. Yeah, and and they're very important for Manichaean history. They're very important for Buddhist history as transmitted of of these religions. Yes, and they had trading colonies farther to the east, outside of their homeland in areas that were in contact with or controlled by China. Um, and therefore, there's a lot of Sogdian remains inside what's today China. So these three languages, in Texas, these three languages, as well as the Uyghur language, or the mm. Old Turkic, you can use both phrases to refer to this language, Old Turkic or Uyghur. And of course, today are aware of the Uyghurs because of the, the tough conditions they're existing in under uh, the current PRC. Um, but they have a long history in Central Asia as well, and they convert to Manichaeism. The ruling elite of the Uyghurs converts to Manichaeism in the mid-8th century, and therefore we have a body of Manichaean texts in their language as well. So that's all that material that I just described, about 5,000 fragments, mostly single pages, fragmentary pages, again, running the spectrum from uh, correspondence to hymns to uh, fragments of his own writings to sermons and things like that um, and works of art I should say we don't have any works of art from Manichaeism in the west but from Central Asia and China we do um, and so all of those materials were found at a site called Turfong uh, which is a major city today inside the Uyghur uh, autonomous region in, in People's Republic of China. And then a little farther to the east is Dun Huang, which people are familiar with from Buddhism. But again, uh, one of the offshoots of the Uyghurs controlled Dun Huang for a couple centuries. And so we find a, a Uyghur Manichaean text and Chinese Manichaean texts. Mm. Also from so translations of Manichaean works in Chinese from Dun Huang. And then just in the last 10 to 15 years, we've had new discoveries. Holy cow. From China. So the first discovery was a set of paintings uh, on silk, which are now in Japanese collections, um, which are originally made in China in the, more or less in the period when the Mongols controlled China, it's called the Yuan Dynasty in China. So we're talking the, the 1200s, 1300s, hmm. uh, and 1400s in China. And so these are really high-quality works of art that depict Manichaean teachings through art. Hmm. So they're not necessarily devotional, per se. A couple of them you could interpret as devotional paintings, including a very large painting of Jesus. Um, but others of them are more didactic. They're, they're used for teaching lessons visually. And Jujana Gulachi has done a lot of work on that. Uh, in recent decades about about the, the Manichaean use of art. That um, was a real find just since uh, this century started, just since 21st century. And then shortly after that, a Chinese team 
doing uh, cultural surveys, came across a couple families in China who had in family possession some uh, ritual books, Manichaean ritual books that had been passed down through the generations. So these are probably 19th century manuscripts containing Manichaean hymns and prayers in the possession of people who are not themselves current Manichaeans, but uh, these handbooks have been used in kind of folk religious practices in China right. after Manichaeism had died out. So that's the, that's the range of materials. It's huge and diverse. Thank you for that. It's an exciting time to be studying Manichaeism right now because stuff keeps popping up. You know, and we think that we've seen it all. Yes. Yeah, but you also have to know a forbidding number of languages to be able to get your head around this material. Um, the range of this religion is staggering, the geographical range. Now, that brings us to the question of their missionary activity, which I'll ask you about in just a second. But I just wanted just to think about this. You know, we're talking about Western esotericism and Manichaeism is a, a Western religion. I mean, Augustine of Hippo is the most famous sort of Western commentator on Manichaeism because he was a Manichae until he converted to what he thinks of as Orthodox Christianity, Catholic Christianity. He's living as far west as you can get in Eurasia. He lives in what would now be Mauritania or something like that, I guess, uh, Tunisia. And Manichaeism is, is everywhere in the 5th century in his time. But being persecuted already, or it has been since, yeah, the 4th century, I guess. And that persecution eventually wins out in the West. But meanwhile, the Manichaeism Manichaeism is spread right the way across Central Asia, all the way to China. And indeed, the Uyghur Khaganate becomes a Manichae sort of state. So this religion is the the old like East-West sort of Mediterranean world versus Persian world as a kind of dichotomy that we see, you know, from way back in like the Greek mind is just breaking down, which is a, a nice... I guess, a nice historical um, foretaste of what's going to happen under Islam when there's, you know, suddenly Baghdad is the center and it stretches from Spain to, you know, Mm -hmm. the the far reaches of Central Asia. So can you tell us about like the the scope? And um, it's, it's really quite shocking the degree of success these guys had as a missionary religion that didn't ever try to conquer anyone. They never had mustered an army, but they just went out. They just sent guys out and they just... I mean, I think within like 20 years of Mani's death, you had Egyptian congregations, no 20 or 30 years. You had like a strong movement in Egypt and this sort of thing, right? Yeah, um, we know that the, the Manichaeans uh, got to Egypt already in Mani's lifetime. And we know that they were, um, as far as Carthage in, in Tunisia, in the, you know, about 20 years after Mani's death. So they, they went far, they went fast. And uh, same with Central Asia. We, it's a little harder to reconstruct, but they, they were the very deliberate, strategizing, planning missionary religion. Um, and some was much, much more so than the competition. Hmm. They really had a sense of mission that drove them to, to just keep going and keep contacting new cultures and, and sort of bringing them into the Manichaean fold. As you say, just by preaching. There was no army of Manichaeism. There was no imposition of Manichaeism by force. Um, even the Uyghur state, when it adopts Manichaeism as the religion of the ruling elite, um, Buddhism continues to thrive there in lands controlled by the Uyghurs. But it is persecuted by everybody. Right. Everybody considers them, the Manichaeans, their heretics, right? So the Christians think that Manichaeans are Christian heretics. Zoroastrians think that they're Zoroastrian heretic. The Buddhists think that the Manichaeans are Buddhist heretics. So they, they, they never catch a break that way. And so most of the time, most of their experience is in countries where the government identifies with one of these other religions and therefore does outlaw them, persecute them, except for little windows, little rare windows of, of peace. So, for example, the 4th century quite good for the Manichaeans in the Roman Empire when Constantine makes all religions legal. From him to Theodosius around 381, uh, the Manichaeans have about a 60-year era of toleration in the Roman Empire, and they, they run with it. Yeah, They really are very successful in that period. The primary concern 
the primary concern of the Christians as, as the competition. Um, the Uyghur regime also gave them a couple centuries of, of peace. And there was a period of time in China in the late Tang Dynasty when the Chinese government was really propped up by the Uyghurs. And the Uyghurs had garrisons throughout China. And during that period, the Chinese also tolerated Manichaeism. And when the Uyghur steppe empire collapsed, the Chinese shut that all down. Right. And so. they shut it all down hard. And in fact, made all foreign religions illegal. Not just Manichaeism, but Nestorian Christianity and even Buddhism. There was an anti-Buddhist... So it was a real hard reaction to the regime of tolerance that the Uyghurs had set up. It's interesting because you would have thought that by this point, surely Buddhism is just considered Chinese. You know what I mean? But um, they were on some kind of nationalistic reforming what it is to be Chinese tip. So Buddhism right. had to go. Right. Thank you. That That is a beautiful summary of, you know, about no summary is going to do justice to a, a geographic and temporal range like this, right? But that's probably the best right. we can hope for in a, a short period of time. Um, and uh, you laid it out really well. Now, they're not imposing themselves by force of arms. They're incredibly successful. Their preaching is incredibly successful. Part of that is going to be because they are not shy about translating their holy texts into any language you like. So they're already, they're like Latin, Greek, no problem. Let's do it. They're, they're already translating his many Syriac stuff into Middle Persian while he's alive, right? He's and he even wrote one work in Middle Persian, right. I think. Right. So the outreach starts straight away yeah, in that yeah. sense. But there must have been something else about this religion that made it attractive to people to have spread so quickly in so and in such a huge cultural milieu. Obviously, adaptation, like a willingness to be like, oh, who have you got there? The Buddha. Ah, yeah, we'll have him. Who have you got there? Jesus. Oh, we'll have him too. Like that kind of free and easy, like, oh yeah, all the earlier prophets are cool, but money is the guy who like fulfills and purifies their message. That approach is always helpful. But let's talk about the religion itself insofar as we know about it, what these people actually believed, how they were structured, and see if we can get to like figure out what's so attractive about it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. You know, religious studies, as you know, is not a science, so... Cause and effect is kind of hard to pin down. Yeah. But you're quite right that starting point would be this universalizing message of Manichaeism. So um, as you've as you mentioned, Mani believed that all prior religions were revealed from the truth, were revealed from God. And their differences could be explained by corruption. A transmission over time has corrupted their message, and he was able, with guidance from his light twin, uh, he was able to discern the common points among all the religions that held them together. And so that that appeal of being able to say, oh yeah, you already believe in the Buddha, you already believe in Jesus, of course, of course these are true prophets. We value them just as much as you do, and uh, our message is the same as their message, and this translation uh, activity that you referenced, this is also something the Manichaeans kind of get out ahead of the competition in, in terms of we'll translate our stuff into your local language, we'll study how your language is put together, even if you've never written in your language before, we'll create a writing system so you can write in your language and so we can communicate our ideas. But translation is not just what we would think as like someone serving at the UN. For Mani and his followers, it also involved learning the religious culture of your target audience and, and, and identifying the concepts and the, the gods and these other figures that are important to that culture and saying, well, you know, because we believe that your culture here a thousand years ago was teaching the same thing we teach, we can recognize that when you call a god this name, that's the same divine being who in our religion is called by this name. And so that they were not asking people, like missionaries often do, to give up everything they had ever learned and adopt something coming from a foreign culture. But rather were giving them new insights, new interpretations of the culture that they'd already been raised in. And say, now we're able to show you what, what is the core of, of truth within this that you already know. That had to have a certain 
comfort level and appeal to people. Yeah. I would imagine. If I could make two little side comments before you continue. One, this take sure. on the sort of perennialist prophetology of all religions mm -hmm. is exactly what we find in the Quran. It really is. It's, it's this, this is the Islamic approach, but 300 years earlier, right. which is very interesting. I, I make no conclusions. I'm just commenting. And this, the other thing is, uh, um, this reminds me a lot of the Jesuits in the 16th century, 16th and 17th century, this methodology. We have the truth. It's our job to go into like really foreign countries like the Algonquin people of Quebec and China and learn and like immerse ourselves in their culture and become native so that we can bring them into the truth. And not do it by like, no, you have to worship Jesus. Be like, we worship. The, and then you just find the local equivalent of Jesus and talk about it in the local language. But then kind of introduce some new theological concepts. And perhaps you'd like to try this uh, holy wafer and some wine. And, you know, like, again, I, there's no historical connection here. It's just a parallel. Yeah, very good. The, the Catholic missionary approach is much more like the Manichaean approach. And the, and the Protestant missionary approach is one that's different. Yeah. And They're like, you people are wrong. Stop it. This is sin. Right. Mm. And, and there's lots of reasons to think that uh, Muhammad and, and early Islam were probably very much influenced by the Manichaeans who existed throughout the region in which Islam started um, and therefore had already had an effect in terms of some of these regions. Mm. Interesting. There's every reason to think Islam, Islam gets some of these ideas from the Manichaeans. One thing Islam doesn't ever do is compromise on the Arabic language of the Quran, which is a very different thing. But um, but then to talk about what else might be appealing, yeah, um, that would get us more to the heart of the Manichaean message. We talked about the messengers, right? All of these former prophets. But what's the message? And the message, and what I think might have been appealing, is the message. You're right. It does have some surface resemblance to a Gnostic worldview in that this world is not right. There's something wrong with this world. One could also call that the Buddhist worldview, but in any case, there is this common late antique sense that our existence in this physical material world is problematic. It is a very widespread view, and all these different religious traditions try to respond and meet that, that experience of life in some way. That's why we have religions of salvation, right? Mm -hmm. If everything is fine, you don't need to be saved from it. Right. So even even you know Orthodox Christianity is is saying there's something unsatisfactory about about the world. Um, we we can talk if if we want to about some of the differences between Gnosticism and, and Manichaeism. But the, what I, the point I want to start with is that the story that Manichaeism tells about people's experience of this world is if you picture a Manichaean preacher addressing an audience. They would say to that audience, you are the heroes. You are the divine sparks who, at the dawn of creation, voluntarily entered into this world to fight evil. And you, that sacrifice you have made is a successful one. Ultimately, evil will be expelled. But... It takes a long time. And so you're like a, you know, like a condo unit who has gone into the enemy territory. You are fighting evil at its root. There's going to be a lot of sacrifice, a lot of suffering. But you are the agency through which this ultimate cosmic victory happens. And ever since you have gone on this mission, God has been working to retrieve you from your success in fending off evil from its attempt to attack the divine realm, which is what evil tried to do at the beginning of time. And this whole world that we see around us is that intersection point, that battleground that, that God created to be the battleground so you, evil would be fought here rather than on the terrain of the realm of light. So that story gives meaning to people's experiences and their suffering. Okay. Now, lying behind that story, there's two things I'd love to talk about with you here. One is the unbelievably complex cosmological story of Manichaeism, which 
which really reminds me of the kind of stuff we find in the Sethian texts in Nag Hammadi and stuff like this. Not because it's exactly the same at all, but just for the sheer flowering of levels and different, you know, Ooh. sort of emanations, which then give up different emanations. And, and often they're um, hypostasized um, things like thought and forethought and, you know, pronoi. In, in the Greek tradition, which is the terms I'm familiar with, we get a noose, we get a pronoia, we get, you know, or an ennoia. It's like all these kind of logos, you know, the, the, the usual suspects are there. Um, there's a feminine principle. There's some sex that goes on between different stuff, you know, and there's there's three different creations, right? Um, can you can you give us the Manichaean story of creation for dummies, if that's even possible? Like the sort of the basics? Sure. That allows to draw the first strong contrast between Gnosticism and Manichaeism. Brilliant. And that is, in the Gnostic text, in the Gnostic text, or the origins of the universe are really monistic, right? God is starting to emanate things out of itself, and things progress orderly for a time, and then have a breaking point, and things fall fall apart. That's typical of, of the Gnostic systems or the Gnostic texts we have. Manichaeism is an absolute dualism. There are two primary entities to begin with. There's the father of greatness. The, the source of all goodness, and there's a, a realm of evil, a kind of chaotic realm of evil. And the Manichaeans can sometimes talk about these things in sort of abstract philosophical terms, and other times very personified mythological terms. But what happens then at the dawn of time is that this chaotic, jumbled mass of evil, in its very limited capacities to even have something like thought, perceives the existence of this other. And it uh, desires it, it seeks to possess it. Right. Because, it, because it, the realm of evil is full of characteristics like greed, selfishness, all the negative characteristics originate in the realm of evil. So it, it wants to possess, it wants to take control of. And so it starts to move to assault the realm of light. And the realm of light is where Father of Greatness dwells with uncounted numbers of other divine entities that are simply extensions of Father of Greatness. And he, of course, has some good qualities like foresight and things like that. And so he knows what's coming. Right. And so he begins then to emanate out of himself special agents whose job it is to, is to exit some of life and intercept the, the, the sort of chaotic mass of evil forces that are coming for it and stop it outside of the realm of light, stop it, seize it, control it, and set up the conditions in which ultimately evil will be pushed back into itself and never succeed in impinging upon or polluting the divine realm of light. And just like many ancient myths of, of the region that we're talking about, the you know, Southwest Asia, the divine hero doesn't just win from the start. The divine hero goes through a trauma, goes through a self-sacrifice, goes through an apparent defeat that actually is ultimately victory. Hmm. And that's where Anakians were able to make a very effective analogy between the story they tell from the dawn of time when this agent came out, wrestled with evil, seemed to be overwhelmed by evil, they make analogy between that story and Jesus on the cross. Right. It's the same. It's the same story. Yeah. Apparent apparent defeat is actually victory, because evil by grabbing and swallowing this goodness basically poisons itself, um, and that's going to be its downfall. Right. Um, who is this agent of good who who sort of bravely faces the forces of darkness? and uh, gets it in the neck for the greater good, who takes one for the team. He's called the first man, the first anthropos. Right. And the father of greatness first emanates a mother of life, and out of them come this son-like figure, who is the first man. And the first man is, is not a human being. It's not like Adam. So he's a cosmic divine being. 
but he is the he's the prototype of the human form that then later is going to be copied into what we look like as the myth goes on. Hmm. But he is that agent who puts on the five elements as armor, you know, water, fire, you know, air, things like that. And he descends, is overwhelmed. These elements are peeled off of him. His armor is taken off like a defeated soldier. And that's the toxic material that is it's toxic to evil because it's pure good. Wow. And so, and meanwhile, the first man has descended all the way to the bottom of the pit of evil and has cut its roots. So like a plant that's roots are cut, evil is slowly withering and dying. And so ultimately it's a victory, but in the short term, it looks like sacrifice and defeat. Yeah. Now, can we talk about Manichaean eschatology, not for individual humans yet, although I'd like to ask you about that, but sure. what's the final end game? Because presumably they have an end game that they're looking forward to. Does the final defeat of evil mean we go from a dualist cosmos to a, a monist world of light with no evil eventually? Do we know? It can't because that would not be dualism, would it? No, <laughs> no, it wouldn't. So ultimately what happens is that we live in this mixed cosmos right now and light, the light that was initially injected into it to defeat evil, it's accomplished that. And now it's being extracted back out. And so all of human history is a process of light being extracted back out. So eventually, all the lights that can be extracted back out through the process that exists in the world are done. And there's such a preponderance of this sort of inert evil left over that collapses on itself and burns like a, like a coal, like a cinder. And so the universe collapses on itself and, and burns out. Meanwhile, the same process that's been extracting the light back to the back in the direction of the realm of light has been disposing of evil back into the evil realm, which again is outside of our cosmos. Right. So our cosmos ceases to exist. And what's left is again what was in the beginning, a realm of light and a realm of darkness. The difference is that darkness has been so damaged by this combat and transformed by this combat and its contact with good, that it is rendered inert. And so the realm of darkness becomes a kind of permanent, inactive space where the forces of evil exist, but they're kind of, um, well, it's kind of like COVID, right? So they're quarantined from each other in this prison so that they cannot reproduce. Yeah. So they're sterile, they're inert, and they can only exist that way for all eternity. They'll never again disturb the realm of life. Got it. So they've been defanged. They're still there, but That's, they're... Right. So it's true dualism. You can't put an end to evil, but you can make it incapacitated. One more thing I'd like to ask you about now, one more major theme, is about the kind of social structure of the Manichees and their, the different grades of people and the kind of function of this social structure, and maybe talk about a little bit about uh, the rituals they do and stuff, which is a kind of socialized channel for moving light in the right direction, right? But before we do that, this system you describe, or this, this worldview, grows up in a very complex cultural milieu, as you emphasized. But we've, we haven't talked about the movement which we now in retrospect call Zoroastrianism, but um, this sort of very, very old Iranian religion that under the Sasanians has now become, again, as it sort of as an earlier form of it was under the Achaemenids, has now become a state religion again. And this is widely thought to be a dualist religion. So is there is there just like a major syncretistic influx of Zoroastrian ideas in, in Manichaeism. Is that one of the main things he's riffing on, do you think? Well, we do have, uh, in Manichaean texts, we have very explicit references to Zoroastrian terms and concepts, deities and so forth. The question has always been how much of this is part of that cultural translation as the missionary religion spreads, and how much is original to the core concept of, of Manichaeism. And you mentioned before that Mani did write one of his texts in Middle Persian to be given to 
the Sasanian ruler as a kind of catechism of the Manichaean religion. And there he's very deliberately riffing on Zoroastrian ideas. And we have other texts where Mani is being asked about the similarities and differences between what Jesus said and what Zoroaster said. Hmm. And he tries to explain how they're teaching the same thing. So clearly he was aware of this other religious tradition. But we also have to remember that that Judaism had already taken a major influx of Iranian religious ideas and dualism, the kind of thing we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, Yeah, uh, the Enoch literature and so forth, that this had already worked its way into the Ju- Judaism out of which Jewish Christianity arose, out of which the Ilkhasite and then the Manichaeans arise. So, in a sense, Mani is getting it from two directions. He's getting it from the community in which he was raised, which he had contact with this kind of Enoch Judaism. And then he's coming into contact as he leaves the sect, the Elkhasite, and begins to have more contact with Iranian people. He is getting another exposure to this. Mm. And he has a kind of synthetic mind. Yeah. And he's bringing these forces together. That's something we should have mentioned, actually, in the among the works of Bani, which we don't have for the most part, but we know existed. One, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, is a commentary by him on some form of the text that we know as one Enoch or or a, a section of that text um, in some Syriac yeah. recension, right? So he's familiar with the the whole yeah. like this apocalyptic story of the Watchers mating with human women and these this race of giants being born who are evil and that kind of gets incorporated into his whole cosmology right so this is a really interesting uh mutation of the enochian kind of parascriptural subterranean current of the enoch literature that is so fascinating right so manichaeism probably a major channel of some of these traditions after rabbinic judaism had begun to distance itself from some of these things the Manichaeans might have been one of the major transmits of the material that we see getting back into, say, um, Greek Orthodox textual transmission, uh, old Slavonic transmissions of some of this material, Ethiopian transmissions of the material. Once Judaism is longer transmitting it, various Christian groups are transmitting this material, and the Manichaeans might have been one of the sort of uh, middlemen of that. That is a fascinating... Some of these Western esoteric traditions. Yeah. yeah, because to this day, the text we know is one Enoch survives in Gez, which is the liturgical language of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, and it's still a canonical text for them. But how did it yeah. get that way? That's this right. is an unanswerable question. So maybe it was, yeah, Manichaean helpers, Manichaean vectors. We talked before about how widespread Manichaeism was and how it had contacts in Asia, South Asia, Central Asia on into the Mediterranean in Europe. And so some of these ideas that we think of as part of Western esotericism are things that we find in the Manichaean literature. So, for example, the sort of macrocosm, microcosm correspondences is a big part of Manichaean teaching. Manichaeans imagine the cosmos to be shaped like a giant human being, and they bring in uh, astrology and uh, the system called melothesia, where different parts of the body are connected to different parts of ah. the zodiac. Occult so a lot of these traditions that turn up later. Exactly. Right. So all of these things that turn up in Western esotericism, we're finding in Manichaean literature, the more literature we get our hands on. And so again, this question is, were they conduits hmm. for some of this, some of these ideas? Ideas that we also find in Chinese material, in South Asian material. You know, this, these are very widespread ideas. And the, the question always was, well, how do these, you know, medieval people in Western Europe know these same things that people in India are talking about? And so when you start to say, well, what was in between? Yeah. Before Islam, it was, it was Manichaeism. And then Islam, what we might call Islamicate civilization, Muslims were largely a minority uh, ruling a majority of people who were other religions, including Manichaeans, Christians, and others who are continuing to transmit all of this this lore. Mm. We should mention here that um, one of our sources, which I think is regarded as quite good for Manichaeism before the, the, all these finds you mentioned, was the Fehrist of Ibn al-Nadim, who 
who is the source for so much great otherwise lost literature, like um, the thousands right. of Abu Mashar and, and many other wonderful things. So he actually cites some Maniki literature, like legit stuff by many, right? Which is which we would just otherwise not have. So there there was a right. a Maniki survival under Islam for a very long time, and I think there was some persecution, and then some. I think Harun al Rashid, the generous spirited guy he was, just said, "I let him be Manichees, it's fine." And they had ups and downs. Um, let's talk about this social side of Manichaeism, and and indeed, there seems to have been a kind of esotericism in Manichaeism because they had a kind of, I guess, a two level structure or four level structure because you had male and female regular folks, regular Manichaeans, and then you had male and female right. elect, right? Yeah, so the, the main community, the vast majority of Manichaeans would have been called hearers or auditors, um, and they were lay people who had families and jobs and the normal things. And then anyone who wanted to take on the harder disciplines of being an elect could do that, man or woman. Uh, could become an elect. The only requirement was that you lead a very highly disciplined ascetic life. Um, and so the elect could not marry, couldn't have sex, couldn't have property, they didn't drink alcohol, they ate only one meal a day, they didn't have homes, they had to travel and live with the lay people, uh, but not permanently, but kind of move around and keep being around. In their, in their missionary work. Uh, they only had one garment that they could wear for a year, and then they were given a new garment for a year, um, so they didn't have a, a wardrobe. They could not bathe in water. Whoa. They cleaned themselves using oils and things like that, but they could not pollute water with their body. Wow. Um, so it was a very hard life, and obviously, therefore, only a very small minority of Manichaeans became them. But you're right to talk about that, this in connection with the sort of knowledge that we would expect from different levels of the community. So some of the more, you know, details, I gave the simplest possible version of this origin myth, but as you, as you suggested, it's much more complicated than that. But we could not, we would not expect that an ordinary author in the mannequin community would, would understand that. Uh, that would be esoteric details. From what we tell from prayers and hymns of ordinary Manichaeans, there was a much more basic, stripped-down kind of set of ideas and beliefs that, that they were involved in. But they interact with the elect on a regular basis. There was Sunday and Monday assemblies, where on Sundays the, the ordinary layperson would, for a day, take on the elect lifestyle. Right. They would fast for a day. They'd go without sex, alcohol, and so forth for a day just out of solidarity and perhaps trying it out to see if it's something they would want to do. And then on Monday, there would be a weekly confession assembly where lay people would come to the elect and confess their sins. And if we want to talk about possible Manichaean influence on other religions, the adoption in the Catholic Church of this one-on-one -on -one confession practice is very likely to go back to Manichaean practice, ultimately, because it seems they seem to be the first ones to do this. Yeah. Um, and then on a, on a daily basis, the auditors had to bring the elect their food. Right, because the elect can't so cook or anything, the, right? The elect, they can't cook. They can't hold a job, right? They, they're not even allowed. If they're, if they're walking through an orchard, an elect cannot reach up and pull an apple off of a tree, right? Because that harms the tree. Right? Right. The tree feels pain. So... There are paintings depicting the elect with uh, long white robes and their hands in their sleeves, mm. symbolizing the fact that they're not supposed to use their hands on the world around them because the human hands, you know, they're, they're called like the, the ten snake-fingered hands, you know. They're, they're always grasping at things, harming things, and the elect aren't supposed to do that. So the elect have to wait for the auditors to bring them their daily food which they then consume in a daily ritual meal. And it's believed that the elect, by the very disciplined way in which they live their lives, they've kind of reordered their physiology so that their bodies actually are capable of taking that food, which of course is a mixture of good and evil, like everything is, and processing it in their body to liberate the light from it. And so 
you know, there would be some initial prayers and hymns, and then they'd sit down to a meal. And from our evidence, the meal lasted one half hour, where they eat this food. And then after the meal, they start to recite, they start to sing hymns. And we have texts that suggest that they imagine that as they sing the hymns, their voices coming out their mouths are carrying the light particles to heaven. And of course, it's not, I don't need to explain what happens to the evil that they separate from the light. Right. Because that comes out the other end, of course. Yeah, that's extraordinary. The, um, I know some work has been done on the body in Manichaeism and this, this extraordinary idea because it's, it's very otherworldly in some ways, but it's also super physical, this, this religion seemingly. Like it's really embodied. And I know that although it's not an astrolatrous religion, the whole mechanics of the cosmos and the earth and everything all has sort of religious significance in the cosmology. And it's all kind of spiritual but physical at the same time. It's very, very interesting, this take on the, the body. Yeah, because the Manichaeans did not, their dualism was not a matter-spirit dualism. Right. They did not say that the divine is, is spirit and evil is material. They believe that both the divine and the evil realm are material substances. And so all physical things in our world are mixtures of those physical substances. And the human body is literally hardwired into the rest of the universe. There are invisible channels connecting our bodies to the zodiac, to the plants and animals around us. And part of the liberation process of an individual Manichaean is everything they've touched in their life, everything they've come into contact with, if they've, if they've uh, struck an animal, if they've plucked a fruit off tree, they have formed a link to that other thing. And so the liberation process is to pull those links back in and, and sort of redeem the light that we deposit whenever we come into physical contact with something else, retrieve that light back into ourselves, and then channel it back up into the heaven. Wow. Are the elect the channel of into the heavens for the community, or can the, the lay auditors sort of do some channeling of their own? Or do they channel it into the elect, and then the elect do the actual transmutation? So the elect are the ones who can channel, and the elect, when they die, their own soul will go to heaven. But an auditor, when they die, will not go to heaven. They will be recycled. Right. Not exactly reincarnation, but it is a process through which they have to go through rebirths until they, too, can be reborn as an elect. The auditors are in the process of advancing um, as they go through existence. Fascinating. Well, that eschatological, personal eschatological note is probably a good time for us to stop. Jason Badoon, thank you so much for this incredible, kind of overly ambitious on my part, uh, take on the, the basics of Manichae, uh, religion and life and so on. Stay esoteric. <laughs>